Section 7 of Hunger by Knut Homsen, translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2 Continued Not even when I was outside the door, and felt once more the pangs of hunger, did I repent having left the office without having asked for that shilling. I took the other shaving out of my pocket and stuck it into my mouth. It helped. Why hadn't I done so before? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, I said aloud. Could it really have entered your head to ask the man for a shilling and put him to inconvenience again? And I got downright angry with myself for the effrontery of which I had almost been guilty. That is, by God, the shabbiest thing I have ever heard, said I, to rush at a man and nearly tear the eyes out of his head just because you happen to need a shilling, you miserable dog. So, march! Quicker, quicker, you big thumping lout, I'll teach you. I commenced to run to punish myself, left one street after the other behind me at a bound, goaded myself on with suppressed cries, and shrieked dumbly and furiously at myself whenever I was about to halt. Thus I arrived a long way up Pyle Street, when at last I stood still, almost ready to cry with vexation, at not being able to run any farther. I was trembling over my whole body, and I flung myself down on a step. No, stop, I said, and in order to torture myself rightly, I arose again and forced myself to keep standing. I jeered at myself and hugged myself with pleasure at the spectacle of my own exhaustion. At length, after the lapse of a few moments, I gave myself, with a nod, permission to be seated, though even then, I chose the most uncomfortable place on the steps. Lord, how delicious it was to rest! I dried the sweat off my face and drew great refreshing breaths. How had I not run? But I was not sorry. I had richly deserved it. Why did I want to ask for that shilling? Now I could see the consequences, and I began to talk mildly to myself, dealing out admonitions as a mother might have done. I grew more and more moved, and tired and weak as I was, I fell a-crying, a quiet, heartfelt cry, an inner sobbing without a tear. I sat for the space of a quarter of an hour or more in the same place. People came and went, and no one molested me. Little children played about around me, and a little bird sang on a tree on the other side of the street. A policeman came towards me. Why do you sit here? said he. Why do I sit here? I replied. For pleasure. I have been watching you for the last half hour. You've sat there now half an hour. About that, I replied. Anything more? I got up in a temper and walked on. Arrived at the marketplace, I stopped and gazed down the street. For pleasure. Now was that an answer to give? For weariness, you should have replied, and made your voice whining. You are a booby. You will never learn to dissemble. From exhaustion you should have gasped like a horse. When I got to the fire lookout, I halted afresh, seized by a new idea. I snapped my fingers, burst into a loud laugh that confounded the passers-by, and said, Now you shall just go to levy on the parson. You shall, as sure as death. Aye, just for a try. What have you got to lose by it? and it is such glorious weather. I entered Pasha's bookshop, 
found Pastor Levian's address in the directory, and started for it. "'Now for it,' said I. "'Play no pranks. Conscience, did you say? No rubbish, if you please. You are too poor to support a conscience. You are hungry. You have come on important business, the first thing needful. But you shall hold your head askew, and set your words to a sing-song. You won't. What? Well, then, I won't go a step farther. Do you hear that? Indeed, you are in a sorely tempted condition, fighting with the powers of darkness and great voiceless monsters at night, so that it is a horror to think of. You hunger and thirst for wine and milk, and don't get them. It has gone so far with you. Here you stand, and haven't as much as a half-penny to bless yourself with. But you believe in grace, the Lord be praised. You haven't yet lost your faith, and then you must clasp hands together, and look a very Satan of a fellow for believing in grace. As far as mammon was concerned, why, you hated mammon with all its pomps in any form. Now it's quite another thing with a psalm-book, a souvenir to the extent of a few shillings. I stopped at the pastor's door, and read, Office hours, twelve to four. Mind, no fudge, I said. Now we'll go ahead in earnest, so hang your head a little more, and I rang at a private entrance. I want to see the pastor, said I to the maid, but it was not possible for me to get in God's name yet a while. He has gone out. Gone out? That destroyed my whole plan, scattered all I intended to say to the four winds. What had I gained then by the long walk? There I stood. Was it anything in particular? questioned the maid. Not at all, I replied. Not at all. It was only that it was such glorious God's weather that I thought I should come out and make a call. There I stood, and there she stood. I purposely thrust out my chest to attract her attention to the pin that held my coat together. I implored her with a look to see what I had come for, but the poor creature didn't understand it at all. Lovely God's weather. Was not the mistress at home either? Yes, but she had gout, and lay on a sofa without being able to move herself. Perhaps I would leave a message or something. No, not at all. I only just took walks like this now and again, just for exercise. It was so wholesome after dinner. I set out on the road back. What would gossiping longer lead to? Besides, I commenced to feel dizzy. There was no mistake about it. I was about to break down in earnest. Office hours from twelve to four. I had knocked at the door an hour too late. The time of grace was over. I sat down on one of the benches near the church in the market. Lord, how black things began to look for me now. I did not cry. I was too utterly tired, worn to the last degree. I sat there without trying to arrive at any conclusion, sad, motionless, and starving. My chest was much inflamed. It smarted most strangely and sorely. Nor would chewing shavings help me much longer. My jaws were tired of that barren work, and I let them rest. I simply gave up. A brown orange peel, too, I had found in the street, and which I had at once commenced to chew, had given me nausea. I was ill. The vein swelled up bluely on my wrists. 
what was it I had really sought after? Run about the whole livelong day for a shilling, that would but keep life in me for a few hours longer. Considering all, was it not a matter of indifference if the inevitable took place one day earlier or one day later? If I had conducted myself like an ordinary being, I should have gone home long ago, and laid myself down to rest and given in. My mind was clear for a moment. Now I was to die. It was in the time of the fall, and all things were hushed to sleep. I had tried every means, exhausted every resource of which I knew. I fondled this thought sentimentally, and each time I still hoped for a possible succor, I whispered repudiatingly, You fool, you have already begun to die. I ought to write a couple of letters, make ready, prepare myself. I would wash myself carefully and tidy my bed nicely. I would lay my head upon the sheets of white paper, the cleanest things I had left, and the green blanket. I, the green blanket. Like a shot I was wide awake. The blood mounted to my head, and I got a violent palpitation of the heart. I arise from the seat and start to walk. Life stirs again in all my fibers, and time after time I repeat disconnectedly, The green blanket, the green blanket. I go faster and faster, as if it is a case of fetching something, and stand after a little time in my tinker's workshop. Without pausing a moment or wavering in my resolution, I go over to the bed and roll up Hans Polly's blanket. It was a strange thing if this bright idea of mine couldn't save me. I rose infinitely superior to the stupid scruples which sprang up in me, half-inward cries about a certain stain on my honor. I bade good-bye to the whole of them. I was no hero, no virtuous idiot. I had my senses left. So I took the blanket under my arm and went to number 5 Stinner Street. I knocked and entered the big strange room for the first time. The bell on the door above my head gave a lot of violent jerks. A man enters from a side room, chewing. His mouth is full of food, and stands behind the counter. Hey, lend me sixpence on my eyeglasses, said I. I shall release them in a couple of days, without fail, eh? No, they're steel, aren't they? Yes. No, can't do it. Ah, no, I suppose you can't. Well, it was really at best only a joke. Well, I have a blanket with me for which, properly speaking, I have no longer any use, and it struck me that you might take it off my hands. I have, more's the pity, a whole store full of bedclothes, he replied, and when I had opened it he cast just one glance over it and said, No, excuse me, but I haven't any use for that either. I wanted to show you the worst side first, said I. It's much better on the other side. Ay, ay, it's no good, I won't own it, and you wouldn't raise a penny on it anywhere. No, it's clear it isn't worth anything, I said, but I thought it might go with another old blanket at an auction. Well, no, it's no use. Three pence, said I. No, I won't have it at all, man. I wouldn't have it in my house. I took it under my arm and went home. I acted as if nothing had passed spread it over the bed again, smoothed it well out, as was my custom, and tried to wipe away every trace of my late action. 
I could not possibly have been in my right mind at the moment when I came to the conclusion to commit this rascally trick. The more I thought it over, the more unreasonable it seemed to me. It must have been an attack of weakness, some relaxation in my inner self that had surprised me when off my guard. Neither had I fallen straight into the trap. I had half felt that I was going the wrong road, and I expressly offered my glasses first, and I rejoiced greatly that I had not had the opportunity of carrying into effect this fault which would have sullied the last hours I had to live. I wandered out into the city again. I let myself sink upon one of the seats by Our Saviour's church, dozed with my head on my breast, apathetic after my last excitement, sick and famished with hunger, and time went by. I should have to sit out this hour, too. It was a little lighter outside than in the house, and it seemed to me that my chest did not pain quite so badly out in the open air. I should get home, too, soon enough, and I dozed and thought and suffered fearfully. I had found a little pebble. I wiped it clean on my coat sleeve and put it in my mouth so that I might have something to mumble. Otherwise I did not stir, and didn't even wink an eyelid. People came and went. The noise of cars, the tramp of hoofs, and the chatter of tongues filled the air. I might try with the buttons. Of course, there would be no use in trying, and besides, I was now in a rather bad way. But when I came to consider the matter closely, I would be obliged, as it were, to pass in the direction of my uncle's as I went home. At last I got up, dragging myself slowly to my feet, and reeled down the streets. It began to burn over my eyebrows, fever was setting in, and I hurried as fast as I could. Once more I passed the baker's shop where the little loaf lay. Well, we must stop here, I said with affected decision. But supposing I were to go in and beg for a bit of bread? Surely that was a fleeting thought, a flash. It could never really have occurred to me seriously. Fie! I whispered to myself and shook my head and held on my way. In Rebslager a pair of lovers stood in a doorway and talked together softly. A little farther up a girl popped her head out of a window. I walked so slowly and thoughtfully that I looked as if I might be deep in meditation on nothing in particular. And the wench came out into the street. How is the world treating you, old fellow? Eh, what, are you ill? Nay, the Lord preserve us, what a face! And she drew away frightened. I pulled up at once. What's amiss with my face? Had I really begun to die? I felt over my cheeks with my hand. Then, naturally, I was thin. My cheeks were like two hollowed bowls, but Lord! I reeled along again, but again came to a standstill. I must be quite inconceivably thin. Who knows but what my eyes were sinking right into my head. How did I look in reality? It was the very deuce that one must let oneself turn into a living deformity for sheer hunger's sake. Once more I was seized by fury, a last flaring up, a final spasm. Preserve me! What a face, eh? Here I was, with a head that couldn't be matched in the whole country, with a pair of fists that, by the Lord, could grind a navvy into finest dust, 
and yet I went and hungered myself into a deformity, right in the town of Christiana. Was there any rhyme or reason in that? I had sat in saddle, toiled day and night like a carrier's horse. I had read my eyes out of their sockets, had starved the brains out of my head, and what the devil had I gained by it? Even a street hussy prayed God to deliver her from the sight of me. Well, now, there should be a stop to it. Do you understand that? Stop it shall, or the devil take a worse hold of me. With steadily increasing fury, grinding my teeth under the consciousness of my impotence, with tears and oaths I raged on, without looking at the people who passed me by. I commenced once more to martyr myself, ran my forehead against lamp-posts on purpose, dug my nails deep into my palms, bit my tongue with frenzy when it didn't articulate clearly, and laughed insanely each time it hurt much. Yes, but what shall I do? I asked myself at last, and I stamped many times on the pavement and repeated, What shall I do? A gentleman just going by remarks with a smile, You ought to go and ask to be locked up. I looked after him, one of our well-known ladies' doctors, nicknamed the Duke. Not even he understood my real condition, a man I knew, whose hand I had shaken. I grew quiet, locked up. Yes, I was mad, he was right. I felt madness in my blood, felt its darting pain through my brain. So that was to be the end of me. Yes, yes, and I resumed my wearisome painful walk. There was the haven in which I was to find rest. Suddenly I stop again, but not locked up, I say, not that, and I grew almost hoarse with fear. I implored grace for myself, begged the wind and weather not to be locked up. I should have to be brought to the guard-house again, imprisoned in a dark cell which had not a spark of light in it, not that. There must be other channels yet open that I had not tried, and I would try them. I would be so earnestly painstaking, would take good time for it, and go indefatigably round from house to house. For example, there was Sisler, the music-seller. I hadn't been to him at all. Some remedy would turn up. Thus I stumbled on, and talked until I brought myself to weep with emotion. Sisler! Was that perchance a hint from on high? His name had struck me for no reason, and he lived so far away but I would look him up all the same, go slowly, and rest between times. I knew the place well. I had been there often, when times were good, had bought much music from him. Should I ask him for sixpence? Perhaps that might make him feel uncomfortable. I would ask him for a shilling. I went into the shop and asked for the chief. They showed me into his office. There he sat, handsome, well-dressed in the latest style, running down some accounts. I stammered through an excuse, and set forth my errand, compelled by need to apply to him. It should not be very long till I could pay it back. When I got paid for my newspaper article, he could confer such a great benefit on me. Even as I was speaking, he turned about to his desk and resumed his work. When I had finished, he glanced sideways at me, shook his handsome head, and said, No, simply no, no explanation not another word. My knees trembled fearfully, 
and I supported myself against the little polished barrier. I must try once more. Why should just his name have occurred to me, as I stood far away from there, in— It won't be me that will do that, he observed, adding, and let me tell you, at the same time, I've had about enough of this. I tore myself out, sick with hunger, and boiling with shame. I had turned myself into a dog for the sake of a miserable bone, and I had not got it. Nay, now there must be an end of this. It had really gone all too far with me. I had held myself up for many years, stood erect through so many hard hours, and now, all at once, I had sunk to the lowest form of begging. This one day had coarsened my whole mind, bespattered my soul with shamelessness. I had not been too abashed to stand and whine in the pettiest huckster shop, and what had it availed me? But was I not then without the veriest atom of bread to put inside my mouth? I had succeeded in rendering myself a thing loathsome to myself. Yes, yes, but it must come to an end. Presently they would lock the outer door at home. I must hurry unless I wished to lie in the guardhouse again. This gave me strength. Lie in that cell again, I would not. With body bent forward, and my hands pressed hard against my left ribs to deaden the stings a little, I struggled on, keeping my eyes fastened upon the paving stones, that I might not be forced to bow to possible acquaintances, and hastened to the fire lookout. God be praised! It was only seven o'clock by the dial on our Saviour's. I had three hours yet before the door would be locked. What a fright I had been in! Well, there was not a stone left unturned. I had done all I could. To think that I really could not succeed once in a whole day! If I told it, no one would believe it. If I were to write it down, they would say I had invented it. No, not in a single place. Well, well, there is no help for it. Before all, don't go and get pathetic again. Bah, how disgusting. I can assure you, it makes me have a loathing for you. If all hope is over, why, there is an end to it. Couldn't I, for that matter, steal a handful of oats in the stable? A streak of light, a ray, yet I knew the stable was shut. I took my ease, and crept home at a slow snail's pace. I felt thirsty. Luckily, for the first time through the whole day, and I went and sought about for a place where I could get a drink. I was a long distance from the bazaar, and I could not ask at a private house. Perhaps, though, I could wait till I got home. It would take a quarter of an hour. It was not at all so certain that I could keep down a draught of water, either. My stomach no longer suffered in any way. I even felt nausea at the spittle I swallowed. But the buttons! I had not tried the buttons at all yet. There I stood, stock still, and commenced to smile. Maybe there was a remedy, in spite of all. I wasn't totally doomed. I should certainly get a penny for them. Tomorrow I might raise another some place or other, and Thursday I might be paid for my newspaper article. I should just see. It would come out all right. To think that I could really go and forget the buttons. I took them out of my pocket, and inspected them as I walked on again. My eyes grew dazed with joy. I did not see the street, 
I simply went on. Didn't I know exactly the big pawn-shop, my refuge in dark evenings, with my blood-sucking friend? One by one my possessions had vanished there, my little things from home, my last book. I liked to go there on auction days, to look on, and rejoice each time my book seemed likely to fall into good hands. Magelson, the actor, had my watch. I was almost proud of that. A diary, in which I had written my first small poetical attempt, had been bought by an acquaintance, and my topcoat had found a haven with a photographer to be used in the studio. So there was no cause to grumble about any of them. I held my buttons ready in my hand. Uncle is sitting at his desk, writing. I am not in a hurry, I say, afraid of disturbing him, and making him impatient at my application. My voice sounded so curiously hollow, I hardly recognized it again, and my heart beat like a sledgehammer. He came smilingly over to me, as was his wont, laid both hands flat on the counter, and looked at my face without saying anything. Yes, I had brought something of which I would ask him if he could make any use, something which is only in my way at home, assure you of it, are quite an annoyance, some buttons. Well, what then? What was there about the buttons? And he thrust his eyes down close to my hand. Couldn't he give me a couple of halfpence for them, whatever he thought himself, quite according to his own judgment? For the buttons? And Uncle stares astonishedly at me. For these buttons? Only for a cigar, or whatever he liked himself, I was just passing, and thought I would look in. Upon this the old pawnbroker burst out laughing and returned to his desk without saying a word. There I stood. I had not hoped for much, yet, all the same, I had thought of a possibility of being helped. This laughter was my death warrant. It couldn't, I suppose, be of any use trying with my eyeglasses either. Of course, I would let my eyeglasses go in with them. That was a matter of course, said I, and I took them off. Only a penny, or if he wished, a half-penny. You know quite well I can't lend you anything on your glasses, said Uncle. I told you that once before. But I want a stamp, I said dully. I can't even send off the letters I have written. A penny or a halfpenny stamp, just as you will. Oh, God help you, go your way, he replied, and motioned me off with his hands. Yes, yes, well, it must be so, I said to myself. Mechanically, I put on my glasses again, took the buttons in my hand, and, turning away, bade him good night, and closed the door after me as usual. Well, now, there was nothing more to be done. To think he would not take them at any price, I muttered. They are almost new buttons. I can't understand it. Whilst I stood, lost in thought, a man passed by and entered the office. He had given me a little shove in his hurry. We both made excuses, and I turned round and looked after him. "'What, is that you?' he said suddenly, when halfway up the steps. He came back, and I recognized him. "'God bless me, man! What on earth do you look like? What were you doing in there?' "'Oh, I had business. You are going in too, I see. Yes, what were you in with?' My knees trembled. I supported myself against the wall, and stretched out my hand with the buttons in it. "'What the deuce!' he cried. 
No, this is really going too far. Good night, said I, and was about to go. I felt the tears choking my breast. No, wait a minute, he said. What was I to wait for? Was he not himself on the road to my uncle, bringing perhaps his engagement ring? Had been hungry, perhaps, for several days, owed his landlady. Yes, I replied, if you will be out soon. Of course, he broke in, seizing hold of my arm. But I may as well tell you I don't believe you. You are such an idiot that it's better you come in along with me. I understood what he meant, suddenly felt a little spark of pride, and answered, I can't. I promised to be in Burnt Acre Street at half-past seven, and— Half-past seven, quite so, but it's eight now. Here I am, standing with my watch in hand that I'm going to pawn. So in with you, you hungry sinner. I'll get you five shillings anyhow. And he pushed me in. End of part two